hello, my friends. I got to take a deep breath on this one. <laughs> this is the Robcast episode 280. Uh, this episode is a sermon. It's called Till No Space is Left. And uh, I actually, I was really struggling with whether even to do an episode because of some things that have happened in the past couple of days. Uh, I was just sort of cooked, just... Didn't have a whole lot to say, you know what I mean? But I've been working on this sermon for the past week from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet, wrote, spoke uh, in the 700s BC. There were probably actually three Isaiahs that are all form one book, and it comes in like multiple places ge geographically where the book of Isaiah comes from. Um, we'll get into all that in a minute. So I've been working on this sermon this week, and then... Well, uh, I'm sure you're like me. At some point, you saw the video of George Floyd, and you're shocked, sad, angry at another one of these videos of police brutality and the racism that animates it and all of the issues that are bound up in that. Um, but then yesterday afternoon in our neighborhood was this protest, a peaceful protest organized by our friends at Black Lives Matter. And I mean, oh, I can't even imagine how many people. I mean, it was massive and it was somber and defiant and inspiring and all, I mean, families, all ages. Um, and, and it like literally just passed by right at the end of our street. So um, I'm sure you saw footage of all the different protests going on around the world. The LA one, there was one downtown and then one in our neighborhood here. And uh, it was just, uh, I mean, it's heavy. And, and um, you know, it weighs on the heart. And yet to see everybody coming out and standing together like this was so moving. And then by yesterday afternoon, um, everything changed. And uh, just behind where I, where I was marching, um, honestly, the police antagonized a group of people. And then from there, it, it turned dark fast. Um, and then there were the police firing the rubber bullets. And then they started setting stuff on fire, and then the cars started getting set on fire. So if you saw those overhead images of L.A., that's literally like the end of our street, around the corner, down the block, that sort of thing. And um, then there was a curfew, and so last night, like, police helicopters everywhere, and then fire trucks, and then sirens, and then the looting began, and uh, yeah, it was just a night that my family and I will never forget. Um, so that's why even last night I was like, I was, I, I found myself like, I was thinking about recording a Robcast tomorrow. I am in no shape to say anything. I was literally like, maybe I'll just talk about how sad I am on so many different levels and angry and grieving. And, uh, and then this morning woke up and uh, the house to the left of us um, had FTP painted in big letters on the wall, and a house a couple doors to the right had ACAB um, graffitied in big letters on their front, like, gate wall. Um, and then I took a walk this morning early, and, like, there are uh, tons of stores in every direction, but um, the clo the, there are like two stores that are like just at the end of our block, like literally eight houses from us. And the one was just completely wrecked. All the windows smashed in, everything. It's a very, very expensive clothing store. Everything in the store taken. And then um, the store next to it, like slightly closer to our house, was um, looked like a baseball bat had been taken to the windows. And, um, you know, like inch thick glass just shattered everywhere and everything taken. And our street is just graffiti everywhere and I mean everything taken from the Adidas store like right down the list everything just um, but here's the thing this morning by like 7 seven thirty, the neighbors were all out helping clean up so Violet woke up my 11 year old daughter and she wanted to see so she and I went out for a walk and the streets are literally packed with people cleaning up and like, like uh, 
with razor blades, you know, scraping graffiti off the windows of stores in the neighborhood. Um, and there were fires, um, a couple stores burned down and like, there's just so many people out sweeping the streets. Um, and I was watching Violet like to see, cause I'd had this thought, but I was interested. I wanted to see how she'd respond to it. And she's like, dad, we seriously should, uh, we should, we should help out. So she and I come back and we get brooms and uh, the closest store to our house, eight doors down, is a weed store. <laughs> God's Herb Dispensary, not the name, but you know what I mean. And we were like, and she was like, we should, we should help sweep up that glass, shouldn't we? And so she and I, this morning on a Sunday morning, um, are out sweeping up glass. And literally the owners stopped us and said, I'm sorry, but thank you so much, but we need to get photos of all this as it's in its damaged state for insurance, et cetera. But um, my, my family and I, we keep talking about, I'm sure you've had this feeling like this year, 2020, this is a year unlike any other. Are you with me on this? Like this year just charged in and went, I am not a year you've met before. Um, by the way, if you're like me and you grew up in the 70s and 80s, and when somebody did mention the year 2020, when you were a kid growing up, 2020 did feel like like supersonic future, right? 2000, 2010, yeah. But 2020 was like, and 2020 has delivered like the the upheaval, the grief, the this is uh, massive protests over systemic racial injustice. Oh during a global pandemic in which the death toll in our nation alone, the U.S., just passed the 100,000 mark. I mean, this, this thing. But you know you are living in surreal times when you and your 11-year-old daughter, first thing on a Sunday morning, are sweeping up the glass, inch-thick glass from the shattered window of the weed store in your neighborhood, <laughs> one of 20 such enterprises in the neighborhood. That is, whew. So I had had this sort of, eh, I'll do a Robcast later. I'm, I'm in, I am in no state to say anything coherent. And if I did, I would just call it, I'm so sad. I'm sad for the family of George Floyd. I'm sad for everybody who's lost someone to police brutality. I'm, I'm sad for the systemic racism that continues to haunt and plague our life together. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sad about the institution of slavery on which the economic engine of this global military economic powerhouse was even built let alone uh, the kind of anger and pent-up rage that would have people setting things on fire and destroying the stores and restaurants in uh, my neighborhood that I so love to call home. So I'm like you. The sadness just goes in every direction. The grief, the anger, the lament. Um, so I was just sort of sitting with that, um, so moved to see everybody out this morning cleaning up. But then in, in being inspired by that, um, like for so many of us, knowing this path ahead of us, the upheaval and the listening and the revolution that is needed, um, yes, so much work ahead for all of us. So then I go um, and I, I look, because um, I'd actually written down this sermon that I'd been working on for this week. And I thought, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm not in any shape to do that. And then I took a look at it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I should probably just do it. Because see, here's the thing that happens. Over the years, um, doing sermons... You work for months, weeks on a sermon, and then there's a date when you're going to give it. I cannot tell you, I, can't, I, I lost track of how many times I would be working on a sermon and get filled with like a deep sense of conviction, moved like, oh, I've got to say this. This has done something to me. I could only, I could only hope and imagine it might 
um, do something to other people like what it's done to me. And then something would happen the week or the two weeks, some event locally or internationally, um, some event would happen and I would think, oh, should I just scrap it and do a whole new sermon based on this event that had just happened? But then I would go back through what I'd already prepared and just be blown away, like, wow, um, <laughs> I think this is actually exactly the thing to say now. So um, this is one of those moments where uh, this sermon that I've been working on just feels like the thing to share with you, and then, um, you know, we'll see if it helps. So um, I am a, you know, the police helicopters were over our head for most of the night, so I'm, I'm going on just a few hours of sleep. My, of sleep. My heart is like uh, tender in, in a way. Um, I'm sure so many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like um, somewhere between a tear and defiance and uh, a thousand other emotions sitting side by side. So anyway, all that said, my friends, let's do a sermon from a text that is somewhere around 2,400 years old, um, a Hebrew prophet writing in a different time in a different place, and let's just see if there's anything for us here. And the line that I've been thinking about for the past couple of weeks that had been working on me, the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, and let me read it for you, and then let me give you a background on what the prophets even were, and we'll go from there. The line says, woe to you. And when you see like a woe to you in the Hebrew scriptures, it's not woe like, whoa, dude. It's the other kind of woe. Like, it is going to come down hard on you. Would not want to be you. Warning to you is essentially it. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Surely the great houses, God says, will become desolate and the fine mansions left without occupants. Now, um, what is this? Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the field. This is a specific reference to a specific thing that was happening in and around the city of Jerusalem in that region 20, over 2,000 years ago. But I want to take it, you back and show you what Isaiah is speaking to. But in order to show you what that is, we need to talk for a minute about what a prophet even was. So what happened roughly 2,500 years ago is this group of people rose up, the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos. And the prophets, some people argue that the prophets are the first coherent, articulate voices for social justice because an institution had arisen, a kingdoms, like the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem being a part of this kingdom, the, the, like almost the capital, the center, um, the center of gravity, so Jerusalem is both a city, but it's also um, like a type, like an image, meaning power, centralized power. So you had monarchy, you had a centralized ruling system, you had a ruling caste, aristocrats, and then you had religion mixed in with military, mixed in with economics. You had an industrial economic religious complex that allowed power, that had power secured by a few people, and those few people used their power to consolidate their power at the expense of the masses who often were, were missing like the most basic necessities of life. Once again, just talking about something that happened a long time ago. And so these prophets rise up, and they speak truth to power. Like this line um, in Isaiah, uh, can you hear the pages turning? Um, 
like the prophet Isaiah says, daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons. <laughs> you know what a hut in a field of melons is? Essentially, the prophet says, ah, oh, this whole giant structure, it may appear like it is the dominant ruling system, but it's actually just a hut in a field of melons. That is an ancient critique essentially saying this whole thing that appears so powerful, it's a house of cards, and it could come crumbling down at any minute. This is what's so important to understand about the prophets. The prophets are in absolutely no way intimidated by the power of the ruling authorities. Some of them are shepherds. Some of them get endlessly scorned and mocked and beaten and tortured, and they just keep coming back for more. Now, here's the thing about a prophet. The prophet is the one who has to speak up and point out how the system is broken. They can't not speak. Like the prophet Jeremiah just said, it's like a fire. I can't keep it in even if I tried. Like, you know how you have that friend who's really musical, and maybe you have a friend who has perfect pitch, and if, like, music is off, like, if the piano isn't tuned right, if the guitar isn't tuned, um, it just makes them crazy because they are so tuned in to proper pitch that when they hear bad music, it, like, viscerally affects them. It's like a, it's like a form of tangible torture for them. Or maybe you have a friend who has aesthetic, or maybe it's you. You have a highly sensitive sense of aesthetics. Like, if the colors are wrong, it just makes you crazy. Or if things like aren't organized and lined up right, if the feng shui is off, it's just like, uh, you, you like, like can't do it. Or maybe you're just the person who's organized. Maybe you're, you're the accountant. You're the person who keeps the columns lined up, makes sure all the numbers um, have a coherence to them. And if there isn't that sort of coherence, it just makes you crazy. I, I, I bet uh, there are things that just drive you mental. You are so highly sensitive and aware. That's, that's one way to understand the prophets. The prophet can't overlook injustice. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're like me. We see things all the time, right? You see things all the time that aren't right. It's not fair. Where was that made? How much was that person paid? Like, think everywhere we turn, we can find injustices. We can find things. That's not fair. That's not right. They should be paid more. Wait, they don't have health care? What? Um, we see this all the time. The prophet, and it's almost like to get through the day, um, you have to overlook certain things. Otherwise, you'd get five minutes in the day and you have to stop. Um, so there's like these tiny little things that in the modern world, we just, um, just to get through a day, it's not that you don't care, it's just, um, you're just trying to get through the day. The prophet, historically, the prophet is the one who can't overlook it. They're the one who see where the system is broken. They see where somebody isn't being treated fairly. They see where things haven't been divided up or distributed properly, and somebody has way too much, and somebody doesn't have enough. And the prophet says something about it. They can't not speak. So when you get to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah in the 700s is a prophet who is one of many prophets who rise up and to this corrupt industrial, military, religious, economic complex that is oppressing people in the name, as well as endlessly solidifying the power of those at the top, the prophets rise up and just go for it and just say, like, listen, um, Isaiah speaks of the religious... Um, like the, re the religious corruption that has taken place in the city of Jerusalem. And he, said, he speaks as if, um, he, he, uh, he speaks 
like on behalf of God and just says to the people, like, stop bringing your meaningless offerings while you appear before me. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your feasts and your festivals. I hate with all my being. So when Isaiah speaks to these very, very religious people on behalf of the divine, he says, God hates your religion. He hates your festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. I will hide my eyes from you. So this is how the prophet spoke to these very, very, very religious people who saw themselves as sort of chosen people of God. The prophets rise up and say, oh, oh, you, you really, really religious people, you ignore the poor. So here's what God has to say to you. God hates your religion. God hates all of your festivals and festivities. God hates it when you come together at your appointed times. God essentially says, I'm not even going to look at you. You're so repulsive to me with the way you conduct yourselves, thinking that this somehow is what the divine asks for. Do you feel that? Like fearlessness? Do you feel these, in some cases, they're like, insignificant shepherds and such, and yet they charge into the halls of power. And they essentially say, oh, this whole structure here, this whole giant thing that can torture people who resist it, that has this standing armies. Oh yeah, it's a hut in a field of melons. (laughs) What you also find with the prophets, not only this fearlessness, this like inability to stay quiet about the system and the ways it has gone off the rails. What you also find is a deep understanding of the systemic nature of injustice. See, uh, especially in Western culture, Europe, America, and especially in America, which is like the global capital of individualism, individual rights no matter what, the person, the self, over and against everything else. So when you've been uh, sort of marinating in a culture like this, for many people, their lens is individual. But what the prophets spoke to wasn't just individual cases of guilt, the ways in which individuals had caused harm to others. But the prophets spoke to communal guilt, which is very hard for Western sensibilities even to wrap our minds around because we've been so trained in the individual self over and against everything. But the prophets had this profound sense of communal guilt, things that that together we are responsible for. By the way, I mean, obviously, you're with me on this. Can you see how a reclaiming of communal guilt would do wonders? Specifically in areas like economic inequality, racism, the injustice that lingers in the air from the actions of our ancestors. Yeah, can you see how a reclaiming of communal guilt, um, even, and I hesitate to use this word because of all sorts of things that get get attached to it, but but you can see how a, a sense of communal shame, like this is not right. Yeah, if you have felt that recently, if you have felt that, like, what is this thing that I'm feeling? What what many people are feeling right now, it's in the air, but for many people don't have the language to name it. What's in the air right now is a sense of communal responsibility. I didn't do that, and yet I'm a part of this. Because uh, for many people, well, like, take, for instance, slavery. Well, I wasn't alive. Someone else did that. Not my problem. Yeah, but it is, right? It's in the room. It's here. It's not, it hasn't gone away, uh, right? Are you with me on this? This sense of like, wait, wait, wait. We have a long way to go here. And it's, you can sense people trying to grasp some way to get at it because it doesn't make any sense according to the usual individualistic codes that have so dominated our life together and our commerce and our education and the way we even make our way in the world. But one of the gifts the prophets give us is this awareness of communal sins, communal responsibilities. 
yeah, we, we all are a part of this. We all bear responsibility. It's interesting to me how many of the things that are happening now, the voices that are rising up, the things that are being said, you can trace right back to the Hebrew prophets. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much that right now appears radical and progressive, and it's the leading edge of where culture has to go. Uh, my friends, you can find it in, in the Hebrew prophets. I mean, these are like, these voices are like the originators, the original speaking truth to power, calling out the systems that oppress people to buttress their own sense of power and influence. Yeah, yeah, this stuff is fresh. It says, it's, of, it's as of the moment as ever, and it's thousands of years old. So you can see even the past uh, few months why I had found my thoughts, drew my heart drifting to the prophets. Is I'd found myself like, I, I, God, I need, some, I need some way to think about what's happening in our world. Uh, I, need, I need some new language and some new ways to make sense of this. And you, you just jump into a book like Isaiah and instantly you're there. You're like, whoa. Yeah. So those are the prophets. And uh, Isaiah is sort of, uh, he's, the, the book of Isaiah is held up as sort of the prophet of prophets. Um, and the whole book of Isaiah, I mean, even the way that it flows, well, honestly, we're going to have to do a couple sermons on Isaiah. Are you with me on this? Are you feeling me on this? We're going to have to do a couple because there's so much here. But anyway, Isaiah, let's just pull out this one, one little line here. Woe to you. So this is the prophet speaking on behalf of God to these people who have uh, these systems that have become so corrupt. He says, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now, joining house to house and land to land, there were individual farmers. Uh, sort of, uh, honestly, it's the, what we would call the middle class, like the people who actually carry things, who actually are the backbone of the world that we live in, right? Uh, that's the one phrase that seems to be used the most. But here, um, and, it's, and, and it, you have to be careful when you talk, when you, to make direct connections between a culture, an agrarian culture 2,500 years ago in our modern world. So, so just disclaimer on all of the, um, you hold those sort of connections loosely just because you don't want to be like, this means this and this means this because that can get a little bulky and um, sort of you can jam things in to make them work that don't, um, don't really fit in those sort of forms. I hope that makes sense. Here's what I mean by that. Um, it's almost like you have to read that story in its context and study it um, and what was happening, and then ask, now what does this tell me about what it means to be human? Is there anything about this story that speaks to the story that I'm in? Now what had happened is you had these individual families who had had parcels of land and had handed those parcels of land down generation after generation, and those parcels of land, those pieces of land, they had farmed on, and whatever crop they had farmed, they had then, it was a barter economy, where you would, uh, you would produce the wheat, and they would produce the wine, and they would make the shoes, and they would do the olive oil, and then you would all trade and barter around, and everybody would have what they need. This is pre-sort of larger, organized, consolidated markets and currency, et cetera. I mean, you did have currency, but not like we think of it. So... Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field was a word of warning to people because you had corporate interests, large landowners that because of excessive taxation and because of brutal economic practices were taking advantage of the financial difficulties that everyday people were facing and were putting them in situations in which they had no choice but to sell these family lands. And so what happened is sort of ravenous, we would call them corporate interests, were buying up these family little farms and making larger corporate farms that were essentially shoving the everyday people off the land that they had had for generations. So woe to you who add house to house and you join field to field. You are using your economic power 
to grow your empire. And what it's doing is it is choking and it is pushing out the people who originally farmed these pieces of land. You're joining field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. You have consolidated all of those farms. You have run the people who originally owned those farms out because of your oppressive business practices, and now you're left all alone in your kingdom. Yeah, now, what is the whole house-to-house, field-to-field thing related to? Well, the earlier image that Isaiah gives is of a vineyard, and he compares these people, these Jewish people living in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, he compares the whole thing to a vineyard, and he speaks of the love of God for these people. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a good crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So the image that the prophet, and the prophets were masters of image. They were masters of the Banksy-esque picture that spoke a thousand words of protest and critique. Yeah, I mean this, so the image is of a, a vineyard. And essentially what the prophet says It says, you all were given a vineyard to care for, those of you in power. The whole thing's like a vineyard. You were given a vineyard to care for, but uh, you haven't cared properly for a vineyard. Now, here's why this is huge. A vineyard is a holistic image. Everything in a vineyard is related to everything else in a vineyard. So you can have good soil, but if you don't have a water supply, the, the vines won't grow the grapes. And you can have a water supply, but if you don't prune the grapes, the vines properly, then you're not going to get the strongest vines to produce the most abundant harvest of grapes. So you can see how a vineyard requires a care for the entire system. If any one part of the system is off, then the entire vineyard isn't able to produce. And essentially what the prophet says to these people is he says to the people in charge, you have not cared well for the entire vineyard. By the way, imagine if that was the first requirement for leaders, specifically political leaders. Has this person demonstrated an awareness of how inter of how interrelated this entire system of shared life that we have together is? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the rich and the poor, it's it's us. Everybody is related to everybody else. Everything within this system affects everything else within this system. And this is the charge against the leaders of this vineyard, against the leaders of this people, of this nation. It even says, uh, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. The prophet is speaking on behalf of the divine and essentially says, the divine says, judge between me and the vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Yeah, he essentially says, and once again, the, the, the prophet uses this very like strong sort of God and people language and essentially says, uh, God gave you this vineyard. You've been given this responsibility, and what you've done is produced bad grapes. Yeah, so there's this, this uh, judgment that the prophet renders. This system is off. It is bad broken. And, uh, oh, by the way, side note, notice in the prophets how a spiritual vision is profoundly economic, that economics 
do people have enough? And by the way, anytime you hear the word justice, justice in the ancient tradition, justice means enough is one way to understand it. Justice means does everybody have enough? So if somebody is being oppressed and they aren't able to bring their case before the proper authorities, do they have enough voice? Is their voice being, is the voice of the one being stepped on being heard? Um, are they getting enough of a fair hearing for the grievance that they have? Does everybody have enough food? Does everybody have enough safety and protection? When you hear the word justice, because undergirding the prophets is a belief in abundance, the earth can provide. There is enough. If there isn't enough, if somebody is lacking, then that means somebody else is stockpiling. So this goes all the way back to the Pharaoh story. Pharaoh was stockpiling grain, and people had to come to the Pharaoh. And so the birth of empire, which eventually enslaves, is always stockpiling. It has surplus while others are starving. So the prophets believed in abundance. There's enough. The earth can provide food for everybody. If there's famine, if somebody somewhere is hungry, it's because some system has allowed somebody somewhere to stockpile more than they could ever use. And that is why these people over here don't have enough. And so in the vision of the prophets, any proper spiritual vision for the world is always going to have proper economics. This is why, oh, when, when you hear people do that thing, like, we're just into the heart. Have you ever heard that thing? Or like, no, I just talk about spiritual matters. Or the one that just makes me, like, I just want to pull out my hair is the one about, well, Jesus wasn't into politics or economics. He was just a, about your heart. Oh, my word. I, oh, Oh, it seriously cranks me up more than I can even begin to articulate. Because when you go into this tradition, a spiritual vision for life is always a holistic vision for life. And it is about your body. It is about forgiveness and revenge. It is about food. And it is always about proper economics in which there is a proper safety net, in which the most vulnerable are always protected. Everything is spiritual. Yeah, for the prophets, for the prophets, the everyday details of food, shelter, clothing, honorable work, care for the vulnerable, these, according to the prophets, these are the things God cares most about. Yeah, yeah, there's one prophet, uh, perhaps we'll get to at some point, who simply says, has this line in which, in which God says, to, to care for the poor is to know me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how you care for the most vulnerable is how you understand the divine. Oh yeah, the prophets do not mess around here. For the prophets, the way things are arranged at the political, economic, cultural level is the first order, in many ways, of spiritual leadership. Have things been arranged so that everybody has enough? Yeah, and so this image that Isaiah was working in with a, is a vineyard in which everything is related to everything else, and the prophet is speaking judgment to the leaders of the vineyard, essentially saying God is looking around at the vineyard, and the vineyard has not been cared for well. Now, I notice this line. Um, but, I mean, there's so many. Oh, yeah. Um, Woe to you who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. That's basically those of you who are so wealthy that, that you can essentially just lay around all day in the bounty of the harvest and not care about the needs of people who have real needs around you. They acquit the guilty for a bribe, but, to, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass 
sinks down in the flames. So their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. So what the prophets did time and time again is come into this broken system, call out the inequities and oppression and injustice of the system. The innocent don't even get a fair trial, what that line says calls out the failure of those who have been running the vineyard to properly steward and care for every element of the vineyard. And then essentially what they say, like when this says, um, as dry grass sinks down in the flames, essentially say your empire is going to crumble. The system here is not sustainable. And notice, by the way, when the prophet says, like, therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, basically says, your whole thing is going to burn to the ground. By the way, this does happen to Jerusalem. So um, there's a story that's unfolding here. This actually does happen. But note, the collapse will be external, but it will be just as internal. Here's what I mean. An empire can get conquered from outside. An empire can also collapse from within because it didn't care for the most vulnerable in its midst. Good God, this hits me in the heart. Woo! Uh, there are police helicopters flying overhead right now, and somehow that sound is like the perfect soundtrack to talk about this with. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, do you see what the prophet said? The prophet said, if you do not give justice to the most vulnerable in your midst. If the innocent can't get a trial, if there are people crying out to be heard who don't have enough to make a life, then the whole thing will collapse from the inside. It'll become like a house of cards because it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. So for many people, their image of, you think about like a nation or a society or a civilization and be like, oh, how did it end? Well, obviously somebody more powerful with stronger weapons came from the outside and came in and invaded and conquered. But what the prophets offer up is the whole thing can also end another way. The system wasn't sustainable. It didn't understand the integral nature of our life together. The people with their hands on the levers of power did not care for the most vulnerable. And by the way, the woes here, woe to you, the woes are to the most powerful. You notice that? The judgment isn't on all the everyday people. The judgment is on the people who have their hands on the levers of power. Yeah, the judgment is on all the strong people who we assume are going to be fine no matter what happens. It says, no, 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 you are the ones who will go down. <laughs> I know, my friends. And we are just literally, this is the intro to the intro to the intro of the prophets. This is just a couple lines in Isaiah where Isaiah is speaking to people who are buying up tracts of land because of the uh, economic vulnerability of sort of everyday people. And he's saying, you people who, you corporate landowners who are building your little portfolios and empires at the expense of everyday people who can't even any longer just farm a simple piece of land, you're the ones who, oh man, the fire's gonna lick up that dry straw. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and I'm jumping around here in verse five because so sometimes the prophets, you can read them, you know, verse by verse by verse linearly. But other times the prophets, a lot of times the prophets break into poetry because some critiques are so devastating. You just, it becomes a bit more atmospheric and image and sort of non-linear. You know what I mean? It's more like a looping series of images. But listen to this. Um, these people, they have no respect for the work of God's hands. Essentially no respect for the work of God's hands. So they have no sense of they've been given this gift of stewardship and leadership. They have no sense that they've been given something to care for. Um, they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. And then listen to this. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger. And along with them, the common people will be parched with thirst. Let me read that line again. 
Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Yeah, so this is the story of the prophets. As the prophets came up into the system, they spoke truth to power. They said, this system is broken at all levels. And what's going to happen is you're going to go into exile for your lack of understanding. And, and I would argue exile is, is one of the dominant, uh, one or two most dominant, three dominant images in the Bible. Most people don't, don't know much about exile. Uh, here's what I mean. Have you ever felt far from home? And, but, but, I, but it wasn't geographic. You were in your home. Have you ever had that sense that you're far from some place? Have you ever have you ever entered into a relationship or had an experience and been like, oh, I feel like I'm home, and yet you hadn't traveled any mileage? You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever feel like something's supposed to be something, and it's not? It's far from what it what it could or should or, or is supposed to be. It's it's like far away, but you're not talking about like like yards or miles or states or countries, you're talking about some condition. Yeah, yeah, that's exile. That's ex- exile can be geographic. Like you're, you're living far from, from where your actual home on planet Earth in soil and geography and nation state is. But exile is also when you're far from home. Yeah, like have you ever, uh, have you ever looked for love and the approval of others? And then you had this moment when you realized that you'd been loved the whole time. Yeah, that's coming home. You know, when we look for ultimate approval and worth in the words of others, that's wandering from home. And when we return to the deepest truth about us that we've been loved the whole time, that's the return home. Yeah, yeah, so that's exile. So these prophets rise up. They speak truth to power. They just, it's a hut in a field of melons. They just, they just bring out the bullhorn, the megaphone, and they just organize the protest, and they just go for it. And what they say again and again and again is, you, to the people who run the vineyard, essentially, this whole thing is coming down. This thing is coming. It's going to burn. It's going to burn, and you're going to, you're going to end up in exile. You're going to end up far from home. And then that's what happens. That's what happens. Uh, and the historical story, the historic event, is the Babylonians come and conquer Jerusalem and haul the people away to another country, far away to Babylon. Yeah. So you can see there's a geographic move here. You end up far, they end up literally far from, some people stay, um, but a, a large number of people get taken into exile. And so a big chunk of the book of Isaiah is written in exile. Essentially, these people end up far from home, and so they have to reimagine. They're like, oh, if only we could go home. And then they begin to imagine, well, if we could go home, well, how would we do it again if we could do it all over again? Because we really, really made a mess of things the first time. So they begin to imagine. Do you see the relationship between grief and imagination? Jerusalem burns. The city gets sacked by foreign invaders. The, the system actually does collapse. But it collapses, it sends them into exile, and it's in exile that they're able to imagine a whole new order. You see that, my friends? Uh, yeah. Sometimes the thing has to collapse. It has to be in enough pain that it actually breaks down enough that a, new, a whole new way of doing things can then be birthed. Oh, please tell me so good and painful. Please tell me that you, you, you're with me on this, right? You see why these prophets... You see why this stuff, these base notes, woo. Okay, so what the prophet says is, uh, you're going into exile because you don't get it. Uh, Two points on that. Number one, the prophet understands that everybody's going into exile because everything's interconnected. This whole structure 
that isn't serving the most vulnerable and the poor well, that is just continues to make the rich richer. Okay, everybody's, the whole thing's coming down because everything's connected to everything else. And then number two, notice, <laughs> it's like, it's like the prophet is saying your God is going to let this happen, but it's almost what the prophets say is they speak a lot of judgment, but it's tricky because so, so many people have very cartoonish first grade understandings of God's judgment. Like God is just a God of judgment. No, no, no. Here's what, here's the, the, the brilliant insight about the prophets. Shoot. They're, it's almost like they're like, you don't need a God to judge you. You can do that well yourself. <laughs> if, if you think about judgment as consequence, it's much better, much clearer and more helpful to think about judgment as consequence. So all these ideas you have about, oh, well, it's just about a God of judgment. No, it's a God who says, hey, your actions have consequences. That's how the prophets depict the divine, divine thousands of years ago in another time and another place. Is they're like, you brought this on yourselves. How you're living is not sustainable. It would be like if there was a nation in which the average wage of the average worker had essentially stayed the same for 40 to 50 years at the same time as CEOs' salaries had increased 218 times over. It would be like if there was a nation in which more and more and more people were going to more and more debt if people were filing for bankruptcy because of medical bills and overbearing student loans that they couldn't repay. People were losing houses because of financial crises in which the people who organize mortgage structures allowed a massive collapse in which literally millions of people lost their homes and not one person who was responsible for this on Wall Street went to jail. Just imagine if there was a nation like that where the richest three people had the same amount of wealth as the lower half of people in that nation. Well, you'd say, well, that's not sustainable. You can't have that. You can't have more and more and more and more people living paycheck to paycheck while a select few are getting richer and richer and richer and richer. Well, you just can't have that. That's unsustainable. That, that thing, that thing's going to bring judgment on itself because it just can't, you literally can't have that. At some point, people, and then imagine like if there was, you know, massive unemployment, like the kind that hadn't happened in that country in a hundred years. You going with me on this, folks? And you were like, well, at some point, those people, they'll rebel. They might even whew, start making noise. Who knows? You might even have looting. Like, that system simply, the, the system will create people filled with such resentment and rage, and however out of line, illegal, or destructive their actions are, there will be people who say, wait, 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 wait. Yes, of course it's illegal. Of course that's destructive. Of course that's yet... How did this system create this many people who are this angry, resentful, and feel this disenfranchised and left out? How did this system create that? And that is what you have with the prophets, is you have the prophets going, hey, this judgment, you did this. You did this. Now, the Babylonians come and essentially crush the place. A foreign invader does come, but in the telling of the prophets, oh, that was just the instrument. That was just happened to be the, you know... The, 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 the hammer of destruction, but you brought this on yourselves. Yeah, so uh, imagination, and we'll get to that. Yeah, you know what, next, uh, we should do another sermon on the imagination, because the imagination to cook up a whole new order in a whole new world doesn't come first. What comes first is the truth and the prophetic denunciation of how the current arrangement is unsustainable and corrupt. You see that? You first have have the prophet call the whole thing out. You have to have the grief and the tears and the sadness and the anger. First, you have to have the truth about the condition. That's why, and this is the giant point that I wish I could just put this, uh, I could just say this over and over and over again. That's why there's an ancient well found relationship between grief and imagination. Think about in your own life, your losses. You lost something you love and you had to grieve it. But it was in the grief that you cooked up something new. That's how it works. Yeah, plan A falls apart. 
you're heartbroken, you're just grief-stricken, but now you got to come up with a plan B. And you can't rush into the imagination too fast. you got to go through the grief and sadness. you got to go through the grief and sadness. you got to sit there in the loss and the pain and the anger. Yeah, so there's the truth about the condition. There's the truth about how broken it is. You got to get all that out. You got to get it all out. Yeah. Yeah, you got to get all the wounds from the past that haven't been properly acknowledged and dealt with. Things sometimes going back 300 years. You got to drag all that stuff up. If we haven't made progress, if it's still in the room, then we have to drag it all up. It's not because we're going back. It's because we understand that to go forward, we have to go back and we have to clean out the wound. You have to. It's the only way it works. You can continue to act like everything's fine, but if everything's not fine, then you got to be honest about it. That's the gift the prophets give us, is they are ruthlessly honest when things are broken. Yeah. 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 So, oh my word, there's so much to say here. Whew. I am like, uh, <laughs> I am emotionally cooked. I have been on this sine wave roller coaster this week and then the past couple days. And yeah, this feels, uh, yeah, 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 feels like what has to be said. Okay, a couple things to wrap this up. Let's talk personally, because we've talked about systems, we've talked about patterns here. Um, let's talk personally then to wrap this up. Uh, you got to own your voice. You got to own that voice and you got to own the fierceness of your voice. This is why I say that. Uh, for what, a month, two months now? I've been sitting in my front yard every afternoon and I do these sessions, uh, these something to say workshops where I meet with groups of people on Zoom and people tell me how they're stuck and then we watch them get unstuck and it's just the most... Extraordinary. I just, oh, my word. Amazing. But the number of people, because when you do this day after day, lots of people, you start to see patterns. The number of you Robcast friends out there, <laughs> the number of you, you're seeing something in your world that's not working, that's broken. And you've been seeing it for a while. And what often happens is you have some area that you've been working in. Education, healthcare, business, accounting, um, neighborhood engagement, whatever it is. Um, it's all across the spectrum. Um, but what I've seen again and again is you've been seeing something that's broken. And it could be better. And the dominant voices, the dominant voices of the system want the system to remain as it is. There's always somebody who has a vested interest in the system remaining exactly as it is. Somebody is not going to understand something if their paycheck is dependent on them not understanding it. So whatever the, the space or the system you find yourself in, whoever's in charge has a, often, the people who run the system often have a vested interest in the system remaining the way that it is. Institutions tend to build tend to bend towards self-preservation. But what I've seen with a number of you is you have started to see that this thing could be done better. And yet the voices, what you have been told is, uh, no, there are experts, there are authorities. Oh my God, the amount of people who have used the word legitimate with me. Well, I just don't feel legitimate. Um, I guess they know better. Who am I to speak up? And yet something within you knows this could be better. Or the A word comes up, authority. Well, it's not like I'm an authority on this. Then anytime I hear somebody say like, you know, well, it's not like I'm an authority. Then I'll say, wait, how long have you been working in this? 17 years every day? How many people do you deal with a week in your particular line of, okay, uh, that's called being an authority. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, what have you seen? Have you seen, have you seen what's not working? Have you seen what does work? Yeah, 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 yeah. Authority, legitimacy. <sighs> what I've noticed is how many people are standing at a distance from their own voice. There was a moment last week, uh, Thursday, second session Thursday, a lovely fella 
I was listening to him and all of a sudden it like hit me like a lightning bolt and I said to him, are you okay? Are you ready to be fierce? Because you're clearly kind. You, this, guy, this guy had charisma. If, if charisma is f- flying off the screen on Zoom, <laughs> that's charisma. I mean, this guy was magic, like a magnet, just pulled you in, just so much love. And yet you could sense that there's some new space that he's stepping into. And I got to say to him, hey, uh, are you okay? Are you okay being fierce? And this large, beautiful man immediately had these tears just running down his face. Yeah, because you could just see it. You could just see it. He sees what needs to happen. He sees the path forward. And it's time for him to own his fierceness. Is that you? Uh, there was a, uh, I can think of this woman from earlier in the week, same thing. I said to her, uh, there's a fierceness to you. And she went, oh, yes, yes. So that's why I say it to you, my Robcast friends. Um, own that fierceness. Just own it. Just, just own it. If you're a part of something and it's kind of broken and it's not sustainable and you can see ways for it to be better and you've done this for a while, you've done all the, the beta testing and the, you've, you've seen the data, you, yeah, it's time for some new ideas. You got to own that. You gotta own, we, we need you to own your voice and to own, and by fierceness, Fierceness is compassion, fierceness is kind, fierceness is open, fierceness is love, but it's fierce. It's fierce. Yeah. I mean, the prophets do this out of a deep, broken-hearted sense that things can be better, but they're also fierce. Oh, one other thought. For all of you who uh, have found yourself with, man, seemingly infinite anger, and rage. Uh, here's something that helps me. When I see things that just, uh, you know, like reading the news, among other things, that just, um, here's, here's the real art. Here's the advanced player move. Here, here's, here's where the spiritual, here's where the path of maturity takes us. You're getting better and better and better at converting that anger. Here's what I mean. Anger is energy. Anger is energy. When you get angry, do you lower your voice or raise your voice? I rest my case. Yeah, maybe you go lower, but for most people, anger is a rush. Uh, do you get cold or hot? There, I rest my case. Hot, yeah, heat, ang- energy, energy. So here, here's, here's the invitation. Think about, your ener- think about your anger like energy. So when you get that rage against systems, against... against uh, Police brutality, racism, you name it. I mean, just the, the, the ones that are fresh on our minds. When you feel that anger, picture it as energy. And then the real art is to convert that energy. Store it up. Picture yourself putting it in a bucket, right? Pouring it into your engine. Yeah, this, uh, a guy asked me three weeks ago, he said, Rob, you don't appear angry. I'll never forget it. He said, you don't appear angry, but you have to be angry. So what do you, well, I, you know, it doesn't seem to be lurking on like the edges of your work or your words, but you have, like, you have anger, you have to. And yet, you know, what do you do? It's like, oh, what a great question. Here's what you do with it. You convert it. You convert it into action. Yeah. You, you convert it into a new world. That's why this word deconstruction is so popular. It's a lovely word. It's fine. It's also really boring after a while or actually quite quickly. Yeah. You can take things apart. That's fine. Anybody can take things apart. Maybe you need to take things apart. It can be very bonding to take things apart with people. Fine. Pointing out what's wrong with something. I guess that's interesting. Maybe for like not nine minutes. Yeah. But building a new world. That's interesting. Making things. Yeah, yeah, trying steps in a new direction. Well, 
That's where the action is. Yeah. So try, try this. Try when you feel that anger. Try converting it. Try converting it into action to make a better world. So you find yourself overcome with rage. Okay, okay, this is, this is energy. This is energy. I'll take energy. Who doesn't want energy? Okay, where am I going to put it? Where am I going to put this energy? Where am I going to put this energy? Because anger is energy, and if you can convert that energy into action for a new creation, for a new future, for those who need it, all the people that I most respect, man, their converter is dialed in. Their conversion machine, their anger conversion machine, pretty sweet to watch in action. Yeah, that's what I started doing a while ago is I was just like, yeah, okay, I could sit here and stew. And sometimes I do. But what, what am I going to make next? What am I going to say next? What am I going to try and do next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to need that, by the way. Because we're headed into some, some new territory. Yeah. Because a number of things aren't working. And we're going fu- to need your fierceness, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna need you converting that anger into action because we're going to have to build a new, a new world here. Because the old one, the old one uh, it's, not, it's not working. Maybe once it did, maybe, or maybe it never did, and everybody's just waking up to that. A lot of people have known that for a while. But yeah, we're... We're going to need some serious imagination for this new world we're headed into. Yeah, so we're grieving, we're sad, we're angry, but we also know that we're going to find our way into some imagination. Actually, you know what? Next sermon, we'll, 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 I'll, uh, I want to show you what Isaiah does with imagination because, whew, man. So there you go, my friends. You join, add house to house, and join field to field till no space is left. Isaiah essentially says these practices, till no space is left, they're headed somewhere. These arrangements, these structures, they have arcs and trajectories built into them. And where it's headed is you're excluding people, and that's going to be the downfall of the whole thing, and that's going to take you far from home. And when you're far from home, you're going to have to imagine a whole new world. Ah, my brothers and sisters, there you are, a sermon from the book of Isaiah. Now more than ever, I wish you grace and peace.